Hey, Bill. Hey, Carla, how are you? We are here, like we are pretty regularly, to talk about movies that talk about schools. This is our 11th episode of Heads Down, Two Thumbs Up. Can you believe I it? I can't believe it. I can't. I that's, that's awesome. That's very exciting. Um, so, you know, last month we talked about movie soundtracks. Yes. And by the way, I just want to comment on your editing job, Bill. It was so good. It was nothing less than inspiring. It was no easy endeavor, I know. Well, thank you so much. It was not. I thought it would actually be one of the easier episodes to edit, and it was it was not. Well, I think it's kind of fitting, actually, that the movie that we're going to be talking about today actually won a Grammy. It did. Two, yeah, for the best compilation soundtrack album for a motion picture, television, or other visual media back in 2001. So we didn't talk about it, but now we can talk about the movie and, and maybe some of the music that was in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about movies that talk about schools, Almost Famous is probably not one that usually comes to mind for people. And yet this was my pick. And so I feel like we need a little bit of a disclaimer as to like why Almost Famous is a movie about a school. Because it's not. like We actually never see a school. But I think that school kind of runs underneath there's this like undercurrent of school the entire time we keep hearing about william's assignments that are due graduation that's coming up you know the checking in and not missing any tests and so it's always like almost like an antagonist it's always there it's never seen you know it's, it's almost like just water or air or something you know it's there's just always like part of school part of the movie but you don't get to experience it well, first of all, I mean, when you proposed talking about Almost Famous, I thought, oh, this is great. I love this movie. Loved it when it came out. I absolutely adored watching it a second time. And I actually watched it a third time. I love this cast. I consider it, along with Rushmore, kind of a near-perfect movie. And mm. I thought, well, why, why is... Bill suggesting this as a movie about school because we really, I mean, Cameron Crowe is a director who has actually done a number of really incredible movies about school, including sure. his debut movie, right? Fast Times at Ridgemont High was about school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Say anything. We could have picked that about school. Um, and I thought, well, you know, this has a few flickers of school. And I love that idea of school kind of being the antagonist. And, and my theory um, mm -hmm. and, and you sort of confirmed it is that, you know, this is really a school, a movie that's sort of the anti-school movie. It really mm -hmm. is about sort of how you, it's about learning, Yeah, it is. you know, and in some ways, you know, it, it does sort of beg the question, what is the best context for learning? And is it mm -hmm. this young man and he clearly is an adept student at school um, and then he he really has a very different learning experience through this movie. Yeah, he sure does. So should we jump in, talk a little bit about this movie itself? Totally. You talked about the cast. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Like <laughs> Jason Lee's in there, Francis McDormand, Billy Crudup, who I know actually best from The Morning Show. And when yeah. I was watching this movie, I was like, that's not, that's not him. But then I, I would hear it and be like, yep, that's exactly him. Of course it's him. Um, you know, Kate Hudson's in there and then Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we've already mentioned. Yeah, like and Anna Paquin, yes. Zoe Deschanel. I mean, yes. it's just really an amazing cast. And then Patrick Fujit, who I don't know that well outside of this movie, but right. plays the, the the lead. 
and of course, based on Cameron Crowe as a young as a young man. Do you want to do the some of the vitals? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So here's the the overview from IMDb. Yeah. The early 1970s, William Miller is 15 years old and an aspiring rock journalist. He gets a job writing for Rolling Stone magazine. His first assignment? Tour with the band Stillwater and write about the experience. Miller will get to see what goes on behind the scenes in a famous band, including the moment when things fall apart. Moreover, for him, it will be a period of new experiences and finding himself. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, love it. It was set in 1973. It's based on Cameron Crowe's real-life experience where he actually did a little bit of writing for Rolling Stone magazine as a young person. And it begins uh, in San Diego, which is where I assume he grew up. And, uh, you know, you, you immediately cut to his life in San Diego as a slightly younger kid. So it actually backs up a little bit to his earlier days um, at the beginning. Yeah, I love that. At first, my first guess was actually it looked like Venice Beach. So it's close, just a little bit further south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I love if we actually go to the very, very, very beginning, the first sound you hear that I think really sets the tone for the whole movie. Do you remember what the first sound is we hear? Well, I had a different impression, but you shared what you thought the first sound was. What is it? Yeah, the first sound is a needle scratch. Right. You hear right. the needle dropping on the vinyl record. It's like, yeah. Oh, that's like a really specific sound. Handwritten intro, it felt very analog. It felt very analog, but then I loved the fact, and I feel like this is reflective of school in and of itself. This may be Mm. the immediate connection that I made to school, was that it's written on, he is writing the credits (laughs) on lined notebook paper with like a number two pencil. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, like how often as an adult am I ever writing on lined paper in a notebook? I don't know, but it is to me the best credit opening of all time. And it puts you immediately into a time and place where, you know, those were the writing tools you used um, if you were in school. You didn't have a laptop. You didn't really even have pens. I think most people wrote with yellow pad, pencil. So the credits are all on there just like that. Yeah. And pretty quickly in that opening scene, in their house, we get to hear from the mom. And I, I love and deeply related to this, where she goes, I'm a college professor. Why can't I teach my young kids? Just like, <laughs> yeah. Especially when my kids have been in grades I have taught. Like, I am a second grade teacher. How can I not teach my own second grader? Why won't they listen to me? Right. Well, that opening scene with Frances McDormand as mom yeah. is perfect. And it really sets sort of the stage for all the things in that house that are uh, valued, which are school, school yep. and school, and yep. what things are taboo, yes. music, the, the, the devil's music, you know, yes. whatever it is. Oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, she's so controlling, but in, in a uh-huh. loving way. I mean, she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's loving, but she's so controlling. And, and then her daughter walks in having bought Simon and Garfunkel of all the most innocuous I know, I know. <laughs> music pieces of music yeah. and her mom really flips out and, and they end up in a fight. It's unfair that we can't listen to our music. It's because it is about drugs and promiscuous sex. Simon and Garfunkel is poetry. Yes, it's poetry. It is a poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex. Honey, they're on pot. And it sort of leads to the, the sister 
making a decision to, to move out um, mm-hmm. and, and go find her own way. But one of the funniest things about the character is that I don't know if you notice this, but in the background of their house, she has mm-hmm. a big poster of the serenity prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I saw that in your notes. <laughs> and it was all, you know, the serenity prayer is really about kind of letting go of the things you can't control. Right. And of course, she is sort of the antithesis of this, although she does really kind of loosen up as the movie goes along. And she does realize, I, I can't control this. I can't control my kids. They're going to be their yeah. own people. Yeah. And, and so I think with that dysfunctional family as the backdrop, <laughs> I think William like kind of gets thrust out into the world with the last thing that the sister really says to him. So she goes, One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed. It'll set you free. And then we get that moment of just him with, with the record. Yeah. Before we kind of get to the present day where we're yeah. talking about in the movie, we also find out that his mother has been lying to him about his age. Yes. Um, for many, basically since he can remember. And he thinks he's a full two years older and than he is, he is. And he's in school. There's that great scene where he's in school and he, mm-hmm. everyone's in the bathroom and they're like yeah, fixing yeah, yeah. their hair and they're brushing their mustaches. And he looks in the mirror and he sees a child who is nowhere close to puberty. No. Right. And so he, then he learns, oh, there's a reason that I'm not as developed as these other children. My mom has been lying to me about my age. She doesn't even know how old he is. And so that sort of also sets you up to recognizing that here is a child who goes to school. He's very bright, but he is not socially going to be cool for a long time. For a long time. Yeah, I definitely related to that. Um, I'm a November birthday. Mm-hmm. And so when I grew up, November was either kind of the older end or the very youngest and so I was almost always the youngest. You know, one of my best friends, Ryan, is a year and a half older than I am. Mm-hmm. And we're in the same grade. You know, so he's driving like middle of sophomore year. I'm driving like beginning of my junior year. I went to college when I was 17. I was like, yeah. 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 That really does tee us up to, to sort of understand the character a little bit. Sure. <laughs> so what do you think about just how we group kids by age almost all the time? in schools. Is that a weird thing to you? Well, it does. This, this movie does sort of raise that question, which is what, what is age? You know, is it, it's, it's, it is, there is something to be said about chronological human development and it doesn't always correspond to the way we group kids. You know, he's mature. He is uh, bright. He's ready academically. He's probably ready in terms of his ability to interact with people, but he is physically way beyond. So I think we group people by age for all sorts of different reasons, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a weird thing, I think, that we we almost always exclusively group people by age. And even schools that that try to, to break out of that often fall back to it. And I think that there's a lot of good reasons, you know, just developmentally where kids are, are able, but I think grouping them by interest or... Mm. abilities and specific things you know like even younger kids like first graders that like why is math only first grade math why can't kids kind of go up or down just a little bit or why does it have to be first grade math like i just said that as though first grade math is a thing that exists that we didn't invent like there is no first grade math it's (laughs) it's a weird thing and i think that 
that you could really look at this movie. And I think it, in a lot of ways, it makes the case for not having school by age. Right. It creates a lot of artificial barriers, I, yeah. I think. In other words, you know, why wouldn't you work up to your potential in a subject matter? But also it makes you feel like you can't have friends at other grade levels or sure. you're stunned because, oh, I can't speak to that kid because they're an eighth grader and I'm a seventh grader. As right. if <laughs> there's really any age difference. And as you pointed out, there's such a there is a range. And so we put yeah. these artificial um, sort of boundaries around kids and it can be limiting as well yeah. as, you know, sort of just artificially separating people. And actually this continues throughout the whole movie. He continues to sort of <laughs> play with his age and we'll get to the scene where he and, and Penny Lane are discussing their ages. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's jump in. Lester yeah. Bangs. Yes. What, what a character name. I wonder, like, if, if they're like, all right, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we want you to be in this movie. And he's like, ah, I don't do it. They're like, your character is Lester Bangs. And he's like, I'm in. I am in. Oh, boy, do Such I miss, cool name. I miss yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman every day in the films. He was so talented. And apparently he was only able to be on set for four days during the filming of this movie. And oh, he wow. had the flu the whole time. So you're oh, actually gosh. watching him in one of just his great sort of gen, you know, character actor. He's always such been known as for his character actor uh, cap capabilities. And there he is acting with the flu. And uh, he just, he steals the scenes he's in always. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think this movie gives us so many great quotes. Another one we get from Lester Bangs almost immediately when we, when uh, our main character, William, gets to meet him. You know, your writing is uh, damn good. It's just a shame you missed out on rock and roll. It's over. Over. It's over. <laughs> right. But then gives him his assignment. A thousand right. words on Black Sabbath, which is actually arguably like, the greatest thing a mentor can do, give him a chance, take a risk on it, actually mm -hmm. pay him some money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I, the other thing about um, about that character is that I think, and I, I think about this for the whole movie to a certain extent, is that this is a perfect example of a kid having a real true passion for something. He yeah. loves music. You know, it's something his sister gave him and now here's his chance to follow it. And then he mm -hmm. finds Lester, who really loves music as much as he does, right? Mm -hmm. And can really bring that out in him. And so it is a mentor relationship for sure. But for it's sure. also, I think Lester appreciates William too. Because there's this mm -hmm. moment where he's like, oh, okay, I got to go. And then and then the, the conversation continues in the next scene when they're out to dinner. And it's yeah. kind of clear that Lester doesn't want to let this kid go because he's really loving so yeah. the pureness of this kid's passion for music. Yeah, that's another thing I can relate to also finding those kind of educator friends that you're just like, oh, like we we are cut from the same cloth. Like we're just going to hang out like all night in this group at a conference, right? And I know you've had those moments too, I'm sure. Right. And once again, not age specific. Right, right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so we get to see the Black Sabbath concert, which is really like the the big opening scene right right and and i was going into that wondering like really like is he that good of a journalist is this are we gonna you know i, I don't i don't know what's gonna happen but then i think we really get a few moments where his writing actually gets him into the room right you know so we meet the band-aids we get the the classic line where he goes uh, i'm here to interview black sabbath i'm a journalist 
I'm not, not a, you know. You're not a what? Not a groupie. Aww. Groupie? We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. He meets Stillwater, and then what actually gets him in the door is his vocabulary. Yes. Incendiary. 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 <laughs> and they're like, all right, all right, come on backstage. Get him past the bouncer. And for me, that was the moment where it was like, oh, like he actually is a good writer. Yeah. And being a good writer literally and figuratively is going to open some doors for him. Yeah. And I love how his his persistence really pays off. I mean, he tries to get into that door four times yeah. And they keep saying no. I mean, he you're not with the band. You're not with the band. And then Stillwater kind of picks him up and, and gets him through the door. I love it. Yeah. So good. Yeah, we get to see Stillwater on stage. You did a little bit of digging. Tell us about the music. Where did this music come from? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I did not realize this, but Cameron Crowe was married to Hart lead singer Nancy Wilson. Mm -hmm. And they actually wrote a number of the songs that Stillwater performs. And then I think Peter Frampton may have been a collaborator on that, as well as a couple of members of Pearl Jam. So the music is the real real deal. Um, Of course, Stillwater, which is made up of, you know, Jason Lee and Billy Crudup. By the way, I'm sure you know this because you've also done your research, but that was originally supposed to be the, the, the character of Russell Hammond, played by Billy Crudup, was originally cast. Um, uh, Brad Pitt was originally cast in that role. Right, right. And I am so glad. So glad. That he was not cast in that role. I, yeah. I, I have a place in my heart for Brad Pitt. I've enjoyed many of his movies. I love Billy Crudup and I love him in this role. And he is perfect. And I think what's nice about him is he is not super beautiful. Right. Right, I almost think that if he had been this super beauty, it would have taken away from like this experience, like the actual band and some of the conflicts in the band. And I I just love the way Billy Crudup showed up for this movie. And and I thought he was the perfect Russell Russell Hammond. So so I love that. I love that Peter Frampton also Mm -hmm. is in one of the scenes later on. Yep. Um, and that's one of my favorite bits from Mitch Hedberg. And I'm sure I've talked about him on this podcast. Mitch Hedberg was in the movie also at the card game later on. And so Mitch actually got to meet Peter Frampton. And he had this whole bit about it um, where, like, he's this musical icon. Right? So for us, it's great to listen to the music. Stillwater, it's Frampton. It, it feels like a real band. It sounds mm-hmm. like a real band. But then to hear Mitch's perspective and then watch this scene was so funny because I, I think we all know Peter Frampton, but um, you know even as a guitarist, I I couldn't talk too much about Frampton. He was kind of just before my time, but I know he was a big deal. And so Mitch's bit, I wonder if we actually just find a little bit and like drop it in. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I got to act with Peter Frampton. He was in the movie, and we had to smoke pot for our scene, but it was fake pot. Do not buy pot on a movie set. <laughs> But I got to smoke fake pot with Peter Frampton. That's a cool story. It's as cool as smoking real pot with a guy who looks like Peter Frampton. I've done that way more. Now, Peter Frampton's a musical legend, but I don't know his music. So when you meet a legend and you don't know his body of work, you have to divert from that fact. Hey, Peter Frampton, do you like toast too? Yes, as do I. It's warm and crispy and a perfect place for jelly to lay. 
Now stay away from me, Fred, but I ain't got shit to say to you. You know, I was thinking a little bit about this idea of persistence that William has, and he is. Yeah. He's, a, he's a nudge, man. He'll just keep going. I mean, throughout the movie, he's always trying to interview, you know, the members of the band, and they yeah, always are pushing yeah. him away. But he keeps going, and he, like, is going to dig into it and get his story. And I think a little bit about school, mm. and I feel like, once again, if this is the anti-school move, movie, uh, sure. this is all about – school is all about compliance in so many mm-hmm. ways, or at least yeah. the way we have structured school. It's about following the rules. It's about, you know, doing what exactly what you're asked. And very rarely is any teacher asking you to really do something that's non-compliant. Yeah. And I feel like throughout the entire movie, that's what William is doing. He is yeah. pushing and really avoiding all compliance. And so it just once again, that's kind of one of the anti, the anti uh pieces of this movie anti-school pieces of the movie well and again it's so interesting like seeing so much of myself in this movie mm-hmm. i was such a good student because i was so compliant <laughs> school was school always came really easy to me um like all of it you know k20 was so easy for me but i also like deeply believe in following the rules and i think in a lot of ways that actually did not serve me well when i was doing music professionally mm-hmm. because it I would just kind of sit around and be like, I'm really good at playing. I should have a job. I'm in this band. We should get signed because we're really good. And we recorded an album and it's not like there was no hustle built into my life kind mm-hmm. of ever. Certainly as like, you know, living in the suburbs of Los Angeles, yeah. you know, privileged enough white family. Like there was, there was never any like needing to advocate or push, yeah. um, and so like watching this again, looking kind of past bills, like, oh yeah, I didn't, I did not have that hustle or like yeah. that perseverance yeah. like at all in that, in that kind of real world setting. And it feels like such a failure of schools because that mm-hmm. could be built into totally every project all the time. Yeah. Where's your, not... where's the obstacle? Hurdle the yeah. obstacle. How do you get yeah. over obstacles? There it is. Well, what's interesting is he obviously has found this within himself. His passion is getting him to hurdle the obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. Also interesting the way you kind of set up the mom, how it's so much about like following her rules. Yep. I wonder if it's more of a, an equal part rebellion of mom too. Yeah. Certainly the sister does it. Maybe he finds his own way to do it. I love that scene when the sister's like, he hates you. And he's like, I don't hate her. <laughs> so what, what happens next? So next Rolling Stone calls, he mm. gets on a tour bus. They go to Tempe, Arizona. Pretty quickly. It's that stage where he uh, gets shocked on stage. Um, <laughs> and possibly, <laughs> possibly like the funniest moment in any movie is when one of the band-aids was like running along, <laughs> running along the bus and she's talking and she's talking, you know, your mom called. I know what's going on. And it just, boom. I know. <laughs> she's into a wall. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> I mean, how many takes did they have to do to get the timing of the bus, of the running, of the dialogue? And then, because there's a physical wall, I'm sure it's a soft wall, but they had yeah. to time the whole thing just right. To where she actually crashes into the wall, like yeah. the optimal comedic timing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I love that. But it's also, you know, you're starting to really see the band allowing this kid yeah. to, to do this. And, you know, that call with Rolling Stone, once again, is another great example of him 
really not claiming his true age. Right. The, the editor of Rolling Stone calls him and has no idea that he's a kid. Right. Zero. And this is brilliant. And it's so perfect because, you know, this movie was filmed in 2000 and it was just the beginning of kind of the Internet and all that stuff. But this was way before it. So all you had was phone calls. You had no idea what this person looked like. You had no way to track them or trace them or look them up or Google them or anything. So all he had was this phone call. And then as he's talking to him, his mother gets on the phone and tells him (laughs) to do some chores. And the editor of Rolling Stone assumes that it's his wife telling him to do the household work. And, you know, he just pulls it off and doesn't say anything. And, you know, the Rolling Stone reporter has no, no idea. I love that. (laughs) Was that the call right around the time when they're in Topeka? His mom says, you know, you, you promised you wouldn't miss more than one test. He does. We start to see that tension of him just being like, Oh, I gotta get back to school. (laughs) Gotta get back to school. But also this is learning. This is life. This is experience. Yeah. You know, we start to see like at that same time, for sure, not an accident, the t-shirt, we get the fight with Jeff and Russell where the band is like very obviously blurred. And then Russell, and this is my favorite scene in the movie where Russell turns to William and goes, let's go find something real. And they end up at a house party in Topeka, Kansas. Yes. That feels really real. (laughs) It does. It does. And at that party, William is among more people his own age. And Russell's really the fish out of water, right? They almost flip roles instead of, instead of William being the youngest in the usual group of adults now it's Russell, who's way too old to be at a high school party, showing yeah. up and kind of being adored by everyone. And it's 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 a little bit of a switcheroo. Yeah. And probably the, the line that I quote the most in this movie is what Russell says. He's looking down at the pool from the second story, both hands in the air. I am a golden god! Yeah! Apparently, it was in the movie before Brad Pitt dropped out and it was supposed to be at some level a reference to his sort of beautifulness. Um, But even though they kept it in, and I feel like there's also a music reference in that line. Yeah, so Google is our friend. Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin Uh, actually said that. Aha, there we go. During the photo shoot. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah. All along this journey, he has been trying to interview the band. And <laughs> he sure has. Everyone keeps pushing him off. Yeah. Russell pushes him off. Jeff pushes him off. They see him as sort of what do they keep calling him? The, the enemy. enemy. Yeah, the journalist, the, the enemy. enemy. You're gonna you're gonna do a bad version of us. You're gonna the Rolling Stone readers aren't gonna appreciate us. You're gonna frame us in a bad light. So no one's interviewing him and, and, and he keeps trying to get the, the interview and he's not. And so he's really flailing in writing this article. Yeah. But then that's where Lester Bangs comes in and he's like, here's what you're going to do. Like mentor hat on. Hey, this is how you blow their minds. Uh, he's going to ask you, well, this is Ben Fong Torres, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to ask you how the story's going and it's what you do. Tell him, you know, it's a... Uh... To think peace. Think peace. 
about a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the uh, you know, uh, harsh face of stardom. Harsh. <laughs> and it worked. A yeah. piece. He's like, I like it. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, they start to think about it as a cover, cover Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. Right. I think this is about the moment, too, where we start to get to know Penny Lane and her friends mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit better. Yeah. Um, you know, we get that great line from Penny. You know, when he asks, do you have any regular friends? And she's like, famous people are just more interesting. Kate Hudson in this movie is so perfect as Penny Wayne. She is both absolutely sweet and like just so young and fresh. And at the same time, just the seductress and so sort of sort of young siren-like is how yes. I might describe her. Yeah, that's perfect. Both Russell and William are simultaneously completely captivated by her, you yeah. know? And she's, she's, she, I love that exchange at the very beginning with her and William when she's like, how old are you? 18. Me too. How old are we really? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. (laughs) So even though they're very different, that she too is someone who's been sort of trying to pass for someone who's older than she is. And she's so young and she's, this is her second year in a row as a Band-Aid and touring with the band. We get the montage of songs we're in Cleveland. We meet Jimmy Fallon. Mm-hmm. So funny. Who's Dennis, the new manager. So funny. <laughs> uh, we get the plane so they can hit more shows. Mm-hmm. And then Boston. And this is that poker game I was talking about where we yep. get to see Mitch Hedberg. We continue the whirlwind then. New York. Probably the cover of Rolling Stone. Yep. Sounds like that. that that's when they kind of make that decision. You're going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. Yeah, we have pending graduate, William Miller. Yes. This is like the big moment of school where there's this like stake in the ground, graduation. You know, this is a tradition. If you had to pick one tradition that schools do, it's graduation. Yeah. And they announce pending graduate. And his mother is just sitting in the audience looking disparaging (laughs) at best. But what a great contrast to have that be the thing as though it's a failure immediately after hearing this is probably going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. If you're a rock journalist, maybe even now, like, does it get any bigger than that? Like your article on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine? That's like, who cares if I graduate from high school? Like what? It's such a hoop to jump through. Yeah, it is. But meanwhile, the band's still touring. They are. They have this last sort of trip. And they get into a, an airplane. And apparently this is based on the Leonard Skinner plane crash of 1977. Um, and they are on the plane and they hit some really rough turbulence. You know, the, the Jimmy Fallon character has convinced them that they should stop a tour bus and move to airline travel because they can get a lot right. more places. And they're a little bit hesitant about that. And it's really interesting because we don't think twice about airline travel now, but it was really not something that everyone did like they do now back in the 70s. You know, you did take a plane, but you didn't do it every week 
people didn't have chartered flights and there were some historic crashes of um, some pretty famous musicians, including Buddy Holly and um, the Big Bopper and Richie Valens. They all died on the same flight. Yeah touring they yeah. did well and that's why it was so like just dark when the band's getting on the plane singing peggy sue yes like, oh, <laughs> no. yeah and they all just fall apart yeah. and then the one of the only lines that really just kind of stuck out to me and it's like ooh, was when like the big joke of that when they all think they're gonna die when like the bass player's like i'm gay and it was like oh my gosh like how is that like how sad is that? That that's the only moment he can yeah, really come out. Yeah, that could have been a rewind moment for me for sure. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. love that. It just that was kind of the only time I, I really looked at it and just like, what? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That needs to be the punchline yeah. of them almost. Dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they do land. They land in the field. They survive. And really, the last part of this film is is sort of a combination of kind of closure with the band and getting his article written. And to me, this is like the most stressful part of the (laughs) whole movie. This is sort of my rewind movie is that he gets to the Rolling Stone article and all he has are like scraps Mm -hmm. of paper where he's written things. And he basically Mm -hmm. has to turn an article around in like 24 hours. (laughs) Stressful for you because you write so much. Uh, stressful for me because I need a lot of time to like write and stuff, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, everything that they're writing, you got to remember, they're like typing stuff on the typewriter, which means that anytime you want to change things, you got to retype the whole thing. Right. I mean, writing back then took so long, you know, now, you know, you want to cut and paste and move things around. I mean, you're you're good. And this to me was just really, it was, it's, it's a different writing process today than it was. Then. I think we get Lester Bang's last big piece of advice when he has to knock it out. Be honest and unmerciful. You are the enemy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then the band denies everything. We see a sister at the airport. They have a great moment. We get Penny again with Russell. And this is the part where it's like, wait, what's going on? Where Penny gives Russell the address of William. Russell goes to William's house and then they actually get the interview and then they actually get on the cover of Rolling Stone. Which is like, yeah. I almost needed to kind of rewatch all that. Just be like, wait, what are we, what are we happening? It's, we're in the offices. It's not done. They deny it. All of that was a little confusing yeah. and, and felt a little, a little bit rushed rush compared to, yeah. to kind of the rest of it. It was like, I think they really just wanted us to be on tour with him as the journalist and they're like, Oh, and then drama getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. But then it was done. It was on the cover. Yeah. And then Stillwater reunites. They, they end in a, in a good place. And, uh, yeah. and Russell ends up, you know, realizing Penny's too young for him and he needs to move on too. It was such a good, it was, it was such a good film really from beginning to end. What do you think William learns that school can't teach him? I mean, kind of everything. Like his goal is to be a rock journalist, Mm -hmm. at least, you know, middle of high school. And he does that, like successful. Moving forward, you add that to your resume. You're 16. My article is on the cover of Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. He is now a journalist. He can just get on with his career, I think. So I think it's just really like pursuing your passions and just going for it. 
you know, I almost wonder if it's like a almost an argument against college in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Cause clearly he doesn't need to graduate high school. He doesn't need to go to college. He's already doing really good journalism. Yeah. It's just a good reminder of that. What about you? Well, I mean, once again, I, I don't know. I think he is learning how to persist. I think yeah. he's learning how to navigate complexity. I think he's learning how to build relationships, um, to build relationships to get what he needs to get done. Um, he's obviously learning sort of technical skills. Yeah. He's learning about himself. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I, I do wonder sometimes, like at what point does school really become not really about what individuals really need to move forward in their life. And, um, you know, Cameron Crowe did not go to college as far as I can see. I think he went, graduated from high school and then he went on to be an incredibly successful movie director and did not have any education beyond high school. He was self-organized, right? Yeah. So sometimes I wonder if school actually limits us from becoming self-organized. We're so told how to do things and what to do. Sure. And do your report in this format and you know, put a cover on it and write this many words and this many paragraphs. And um, it doesn't leave a lot for us to really organize ourselves around our passions and our interests. And this yeah. was the exact opposite. And I think people like Cameron Crowe are people who organize themselves around their passions and interests. So I I sort of asked the question, how might school be more like going on the road with the band? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Or, or whatever your interest is, like if you're a budding actor, or if you are really, really interested in engineering, how might school be more like, a really deep internship in some of those areas. Yeah, I think that's really the question that schools need to ask themselves and then figuring out what that looks like. And I think as much as students are used to that level of structure, I've also seen teachers used to that level of structure where when you leave it open, you're just like, well, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to pursue your passions. How can I support you? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So it's it's a... It's new and tricky, particularly when there's not a clear path ahead for everyone. And even when there is, it's new and weird and scary. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What else would you say were some things that you really appreciated about the movie, about what it tells you about school, about learning? Anything else you would add? I think the role of mentor is not to be oh, yeah. thought of as lightly as it is. Mm. I think that so much, there were a handful of moments when Lester Bangs pops in and gives him just the right prompting and either kick in the pants, support, ways to deceive. It's a think piece. You know, like just just enough of, uh, of almost kind of a safety net, but also a kick in the pants kind of forward. Um, mm. I think if you get like a, a good mentor that helps you grow mm-hmm. I mean there's it, yeah it cannot be overstated yeah so I mean that's another great question how might schools you know create more opportunities for authentic mentorship for young people yeah imagine yeah. if you had gone to school and you could have a mentor that was someone in 
your field or someone who you just connected with about an individual passion or interest. You know, that's easy. You know, it's not hard to create those opportunities for students to reach out and find those mentors, you know, in school. Oh, absolutely. Not necessarily at the school, but that the school offers opportunities for that to happen. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I still look back fondly after college. I interned at Orange Whip Recording Studio, Mm -hmm. and that was just an opportunity just to learn from people recording music professionally. You know, it definitely was not set up as like a formal internship or even a real like official mentorship. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, audio engineers being audio engineers. And so I didn't really get the like kick in the pants when I needed it. It was like, sure, you can hang out in the studio if you, you know, make sure it's stocked Mm -hmm. and, you know set stuff up and give us some feedback on, you know, what we're recording and we'll show you some tricks. Uh, but even just that was so, so valuable just to, to have that time to be like, I'm going deep into this thing. Um, you know, and and as it turns out, like all of those skills are so useful Mm -hmm. being a, a tech director, you know, even like it just, it, you no longer have to be in a professional recording studio. I can go down to first grade and be like, hey, like, let's record some music, multi-track recording. Let's create, you know, some Foley sounds for you. And you just, you're able to do that on an iPad. Yeah. So if anything, it's just made it simpler and more accessible. You know, it's really interesting. You and I have not reviewed Fast Times at Ridgemont High, although maybe someday we will. Uh, Maybe it's on, it's been on our list for a long time, but we haven't done that one for a while. Um, But it is really interesting to compare and contrast Fast Times at Ridgemont High with this movie because Fast Times at Ridgemont High and all of like the compliance scenes, Mr. Hand, yeah. you know, Jeff Spicoli in class with this teacher who just is just such a hard ass to him and trying to get him to do all this stuff and compare that, which is probably how Cameron Crowe experienced his high school. Oh, sure. And and then contrast it with this, which is also how he experienced high school, which was to get out <laughs> and to do the things yeah. that really uh, filled him up. And he did graduate from high school. He does have a degree, I believe, for uh, he does have a diploma from high school. But he, you know, he lived this other experience and uh, clearly one suited him better than the other. I remember reading this book. I remember not enjoying the book at the time, but it was all about kind of apprenticeship Mm. and the idea that your 20s should actually be about pursuing your interests and passions without needing to put it all together. And so you're like, all right, I'm going to go work at this church for a little bit. I'm going to work in this recording studio for a little bit. I'm going to substitute teach for a little bit. I'm going to do like graphic design for a bit. And then eventually like, oh, like I love teaching. All right, that's my thing. But then you have all these other experiences that that make you, I think, not only a richer teacher, but then give you all sort of other ways and, and paths to, you know, being like director of technology, which are all examples, by the way, of things that I have done yeah. in my 20s. Yeah, that's so um, cool. You know, and so I, I wonder like if we kind of reverse engineer that what what might college look like when it has more of those apprenticeship Mm -hmm. moments what does high school look like when you have more of those apprenticeship moments and then what does it look like to really like do more of a mentor even if it's like older kids younger kids at the same school like in elementary and middle school yeah age is just a social construct correct yeah it is (laughs) correct well hey this was super fun are we gonna let them know what we're what we're gonna record next 
We are. Up next, we have... I heard you in music class. You guys can really play. Why didn't anyone tell me? We've got School of Rock. Oh, my gosh. A classic. I love Jack yes, Black. a classic that I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen. Well, we can talk a lot about Jack Black, and I can tell my stories yes. of going to the Tenacious D concert back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a real musician, you know? He really yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, until next time, we'll just be talking about movies that talk about school. This is Heads Down, Two Thumbs Up. Thanks.